0: Good morning, church. Good to see all of you here, our regular members and guests, as well as some new faces here that we haven't seen before. Praise the Lord. It's great to worship together on this first day of the week. Let's bow our heads, our hearts, before we open up Scripture to be instructed from the Lord our father we have this privilege to approach your throne with confidence and and not just refer to you as god although you are as creator you know you're the creator as sustainer provider and all of these things but you are our father and we just revel in that that we are your children that we have been adopted into your family not because you found something impressive in us but because you always find your son impressive who who did what no one else could do and that is live and lay down his life for us and in him we come to you we are encouraged therefore to draw near to the throne of grace to our Father because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so would you bless our time here this morning as we just reflect on this truth, approaching you in utter humility and dependence as we're instructed why we should pray and how we should pray. Be with us, help us not to run away from this topic, but to sit and to ponder and to, Lord, wrestle and to be humbled and to pray to you, just be encouraged and convinced that we ought to approach you daily because we're so needy, we're so dependent. Teach us these things, we pray, for your glory and our growth, in Christ's name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. We come this morning to a topic that's probably the most guilt-inducing topic that can be preached from the pulpit. If you think of various topics that are addressed from the pulpit um, that induce most guilt that you're like, ah, I, I really don't want to hear another sermon on this because you just feel so inadequate. You already, just the mere mention of that topic already makes you uh, fade and run and not consider yourself in light of God's truth on this topic. Uh, and that topic is prayer. Prayer. Every time prayer is mentioned from the pulpit, we feel awkward and and are often convicted because we quickly realize that our our prayers are just so shallow, that they're so infrequent. Our prayers are so us-centered. Usually after listening to a sermon on prayer, we, we always walk away with the same conclusion regardless of what the preacher's point was. And that conclusion is usually, man, I just need to pray more in order to atone for my lack of praying. You just feel guilty and you're like, okay, tomorrow, Monday, Monday, I'm going to start praying. I'm going to wake up at six. I'm going to spend an hour with the Lord. And you sleep right through on Monday and you make the same plans for Tuesday, Wednesday, and off it goes. And we just want to atone. We just want to atone for our lack of prayer. Well, I want to warn Myself, first of all, and you, church, this morning, that that I have a different point. Jesus here, in fact, has a different point when it comes to prayer. He warns us about the misuse of prayer and instructs us that we might understand the nature of prayer. Once he brings up prayer to to illustrate here the the bigger point, and, and he basically, one point that he highlights in, in all of chapter six, is don't be a faker. Don't put on a show. Don't put on a face. Don't be an actor. Don't virtue signal when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Don't go through mere religious motions, including prayer, seemingly to impress others. Listen, friend, no one, no one can impress God. Nobody can impress God. There's only one who ever impressed God, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. So don't pretend to. Don't set that as your goal to impress God. All we do is on our part, we just acknowledge our inability, and we learn from Jesus what it means to walk in holiness, pleading his righteousness, pleading his grace, pleading his mercy. I want us to read Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 5, and we'll read through verse 15, and we will get into our passage. Jesus continues right where he left off, and he says in verse 5, "'When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray.'" For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees, your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows. Your Father knows what you need need before you ask Him. Verse 9, pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgression. As we look to un- unpack this section here, there are two things that I want us to, to focus on, but the primary theme, the primary point that I want us all to walk away with is this prayer is an expression of humble dependence on our Father. Prayer is a humble expression of dependence on our Father who sees, who knows, who gives, and who purposes all things. And so as we begin to look, I want us to first of all consider verses 5 through 8 in which Jesus addresses the pitfalls in prayer. So first I want us to look at Jesus' instruction about forsaking the common pitfalls in prayer, and he brings up two here. And then after that, I want us to consider verses 9 through 15, where Jesus says, focus on God's priorities in prayer. So first there are pitfalls to address, and then there are God's priorities that we need to address and be reminded of as we pray. So number one, forsake the common pitfalls in your prayer. In this first section, verses 5 through 8, as I said, Jesus is responding to the trends of his day. The current thinking and practices concerning prayer. He expresses two prayer pitfalls which were deeply ingrained in his contemporary culture. And the first one is this, uh, performance-oriented prayer. Performance-oriented prayer prayer. When you pray, verse 5, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray. And why do they do that? So that they may be seen by men. Many among the Jewish leaders, if not all, prayed for people's recognition and praise. True, they, they prayed to God, but their real orientation was centered on people, not God. Now, according to Robertson Nicole, Jewish prayer had become systematized after the time of Ezra. And the way it was reflected in that they had certain times of the day in which they would pray. There are certain special days, special holidays. And although the local synagogue was, was the place, the expected pray, a place where they would come to pray to the Lord, there was no specific prescription of the area in which they need to enter in order to pray to the Lord. Therefore, as Jews were conducting their daily business, as soon as it was time to pray, they could fulfill their spiritual obligation right where they were. Thus, when when Jesus says and speaks of these hypocrites standing in the synagogue and street corners, he is describing this very practice. So you'd be walking to a grocery store right here on Madison and College Oak, and, and you'd set an alarm for a noon prayer, and, and as soon as that alarm goes off, you would be like, okay, time to pray. Let's stop activity, and we will pray, and you would probably, if you weren't at the corner, you would come to the corner, because that increases your chances of being seen from multiple directions, and because that was your goal, that was your purpose, to attract attention, to be seen by men in order to get the reward from men, you would do just that. However, Jesus here doesn't condemn them for their choice of prayer location or even their position. He doesn't contend with them for standing. Rather, he condemns them for their motivation in seeking that place and that position because public prayer is no offense before the Lord, right? Jesus constantly prayed. His disciples prayed. The first church, we know, just looking at the book of Acts, constantly got together in order to pray with groups of people. That was just common practice. In fact, it was commanded practice. In essence, the the Jewish leaders, they were not praying to God. They were basically performing for others. Not praying to God, but performing for others. Remember this last time we looked at this word hypocrite, and we said that to be a hypocrite means to be an actor, to, to be involved in a sort of play. You, you put on a face, you, you, you put on a fake you, you put on the mask, and that's not really who you are, but but you do it for show. And this is exactly what they were doing. They were putting on an act for others. Now, as we consider this pitfall ourselves here, folks in the in the 21st century. Grace Hill members and guests, our spiritual family, we might not stand on the corner of, of Madison and College Oak, a very busy intersection, by the way, we found out that yesterday, right, to, to offer up prayers to the Lord, and, but, but which of us has not been concerned about how our prayers might sound to others than how they might sound to God? Right, we got to test our motives. we got to test to see why and to whom do we ultimately pray. Which of us has not at some point wanted to impress others in our prayers? Or the opposite is true. Which of us opted not to pray in public, whether in our live groups or, or maybe in our prayer meetings of some sort, because we thought that Our prayers are not as polished, that they're not as holy as the next guy sitting close to me. And so we're like, no, I'm not going to pray. And the reason why I'm not going to pray is because I don't want to sound dumb. Right? Why why, why do we do what we do? The point here, church, is these are not only the first century pitfalls, but they're our, our own. We're not immune. And in an effort to impress others and to be noticed, we might misuse prayer in order to let our hearers know how much of Scripture we know by quoting lengthy portions in our prayers. We might use prayer to correct others or make prayers very long or extremely short to the point. Why? Because we just want to impress others. But in instructing his disciple, Jesus wants to, to expose the heart. Not just the act, but why. And, and he addresses the why. He addresses the, the motivation. Sinful hearts. Brothers and sisters, we love to be noticed and we love to be praised. And we'll often even use holy means like prayer. Like giving to the poor. Like fasting later on in the next set of verses. In order to gain notoriety for ourselves. This kind of prayer doesn't honor God. It does not minister grace to you in any way. Because we know that prayer is a means of God's grace. When we come in humility to the Lord, the Spirit ministers to us. Christ wants his followers to pray with a different motive. He wants us to beware. This is what in fact, how he starts out this entire chapter, verse six, uh, chapter six, verse one, look at it. The very first word, beware, pay attention. Why? Because we're all susceptible to this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men and flee this pitfall. When you pray, Jesus asks, do you want to get the glory for yourself or do you want to get God? Do you want to speak to God? So what correction does he offer to performance-oriented prayers. well, he says here, verse 6, but when you pray, going to your inner room, shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Remember what prayer is. Prayer is communication with God, not with others. As soon as we forget this, all kinds of ulterior motives start to creep in and, and we lose our focus Why we pray. Jesus commands us to pray to the Father, And pray to your father, he says in verse 6. And let reward come from him, not from other people who observe us. Look at this, verse 6. But you, emphatic, singular, you, each one of you individually when you pray, do this. Go into your inner room. Now this inner room was like a, a storeroom in the inner part of the house. And this room in first century homes, it was probably the only room that actually had a lock and that could be secured. And Jesus says that when you go in, go into that room where you store all of your valuables to prevent from theft, you go into that room and after closing the door, pray to your Father. Notice the audience at that point. The audience, and this is what we need to to, um, conclude here and pay attention to. This is the focus. The audience is one. So it's not about public versus private prayers. It's who is your audience? Who do you pray to? When you're in a secluded place all by yourself, you have one audience, and that is your Father. We pray to speak with God and God alone. Jesus says, pray to the audience of one. Someone said the truest measure of a man is he is who he is when no one is looking. Really, how, how are you praying? Who do you pray, pray to? He says your father sees. Church, your, your father sees. He sees right through you. He knows your motivation. He knows and understands the reasons why you and I pray. Jesus says leave people out. Speak to your father in the privacy of your heart. The hypocrite's prayers were for others to see and for their own esteem. However, the prayers of those whose heart is captivated by the Lord are for the Lord, for him to see, for him to hear. And this speaks of this hidden inward intimacy between the believer and the Lord, the child and his father. Your father sees and he will reward. So Jesus calls his disciples, his followers here, whom he's addressing here on the Sermon on the Mount to understand the purpose of prayer. The issue is not, like I said, public versus private. The issue is praying for attention. Attention of others or for the audience of one. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives us another pitfall, and that is manipulative prayers. Avoid, forsake, manipulative prayers prayers. Verse seven, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. If our prayers are about a relationship, then it's not manipulating outcomes, right? We come because we love God. We come because we have access opened up to us, to God, our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We come in order to disclose, in order to understand, in order to renew our mind, to submit our minds under God's will. We come because we have a relationship with the Lord, not to manipulate deities. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus challenges the kind of prayer that thinks it deserves a hearing from God based on statistics. If I just pray long enough or intensely enough with the right words and repetition of certain words, then God has to answer my prayer. That's what the Gentiles do. He addresses these Gentile pagan practices and he describes their prayers as repetitive stammer. They believed in many gods, um, gods who were generally uninterested in men. So in order to get any kind of attention and a desired response, they would often repeat a prayer formula of some sort. They would call out names of these supposed deities or use magical phrases and mantras in order to activate that God to action because that God doesn't care. I have to say things enough times in order to get his attention. That's why Jesus says they think they will be heard. They think they will influence that deity, that dead God to answer. They will control him. Their repeated phrases were uttered to solicit some reaction on the part of their God. But since we don't consciously think here, 21st century, us here, Christians, right, of prayers as magical mantras, how do we fall into the same trap then? Well, have you ever prayed just because you thought it was, quote-unquote, the right thing to do? Pray because it's the right thing to do. Offering all kinds of words without considering where your heart was and and who you're praying to? Are we sometimes guilty of thinking that just by saying a prayer, we activate and we can control and we can manipulate God to answer, to grant us something? Well, I already prayed 15 times for this. I should pray more. I should ask more. Instead of speaking to God as to a father who knows all things, right? Surrendering our will to his, we attempt to manipulate And bend his will to ours. If only I just do this, then God must answer. How often do we believe more in the power of prayer than in the power of God? Think about this. We don't consciously think this. We're not consciously aware of this. But we just say, if I pray. If I simply say certain phrases enough times then God has to act. God has to react. And Jesus says, no. Don't use repetitive prayers, repetitive phrases in order to manipulate God to answer. You come to God in humility, in utter dependence on God who works out his own will, not yours. How do we fall into this trap? Man, we're so sinful. Our hearts have this tendency to even use prayer as a means to control the outcome what is the solution jesus says here notice that that he doesn't just simply say hey don't babble and keep your prayers short okay just get to the point in your prayers it's not what he says jesus points us back to the nature of the father but i or look at this so so do not be like them why Because your father knows. In verse 7 or in verse 6, he just says, your father sees. And now he says, your father knows. Back to the nature of the father. Your father, your God, is unlike any other God. He's not one to be controlled or manipulated into giving you what you want. He's not disinterested in human affairs, in your personal affairs. He knows. And that's a comfort to all of us as believers. And that's where Jesus wants to, to bring this intimacy into the picture, he says, your father knows, just like we fathers, earthly fathers, we know the needs of our little children. Your father knows, he has perfect knowledge of your need even before you ask, before you ask him. Luke sixteen fifteen says, and Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of God, but God knows your hearts. He knows you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 Paul says God examines our hearts. That means he could go in and he can dissect it, he can open it up and he could see exactly what's there. He sees our circumstances. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says the Lord knows who are his. He knows everything. He's intimately involved with you, with me. When we approach our Father in prayer, we come to him understanding that he's in full control and knows our very needs. And we humbly submit to the one who knows us. And he knows our needs, expecting him to answer. Church, Those of you who know Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ, you have a Father who is interested in you. And sometimes we feel like, like sometimes reading Psalms, and we're like, Lord, you are so distant, you don't know our need. If only you were here, right? If If only you understood what we were going through, and here Jesus reminds us, you don't need to repeat it a million times to get God to act. He knows. He knows today, right now, what's in your heart, what you're feeling, what you're going through, and what you need. And he desires to hear you. He desires to hear your voice. He desires to answer. But this leads to an obvious question. Why pray if God knows what we need beforehand? Listen, the father loves to hear the voice of his beloved children. And he desires to respond to them. Those of you who have little children, picture a father as you, you, you watch your three, four, five-year-old trying to put together a puzzle. And she tries and tries and just can't get the pieces in the right place, in the right order. And, and you as a father, you sit there and you watch with great interest, but, but you don't interfere. Just let her have it. Finally, After some time, she comes over and and she crawls into your lap and says, Daddy, would you help me put the puzzle together? And you as a gracious dad, you smile, you bend over, you pick up the pieces with her, and you begin to assemble the puzzle. One by one, you start to put it together. Now, you as a father, you saw her struggling. You saw that she needed help. Right? Why didn't you help her earlier? Why don't dads help her earlier? Well, for one thing, she didn't ask for help. For another, you, you, you as a dad, you want to have them kind of figure it out, how to put this thing together. But most of all, as our Heavenly Father does, you want her to come and to ask. You want her to depend on you. That's how God deals with his children. He longs to come to our aid, but he waits until we come. You know, sometimes he, he waits so that we can deplete our resources. And we don't often have much. And so therefore we don't go for you know, lengthy periods of time. We realize that we need the Lord. We need our father to intervene. We depend on him. Every prayer is a cry of a child saying, help father, I can't do this and I need you to come and to supply my needs. Understand that you are a needy person. Prayer is an expression of a humble dependence on our father who sees and who knows. Remember church, that's the purpose of of prayer, it's to communicate with God seeking Him, not the recognition of man. We must forsake and avoid all performance-oriented prayers. In, the, in addition, here, Jesus, he calls us to humbly pray by bringing our needs to the Father with simple faith, that He knows our needs, that He hears our prayers and that He provides for them. He's in full control. Remember, church, all of us are are qualified by Jesus to approach God as Father. And listen, that that removes all the natural longings to impress, to be noticed, to be thought of someone other than who you are. There's no reason to impress anymore. Why? Because we understand we can't impress the only one who is worthy to be impressed, and that is God. Only Jesus can, so therefore, through him, In humility, we approach God. But Jesus doesn't stop simply by pointing out pitfalls. He also points us to God's priorities in teaching us how we ought to pray. And that's when we get to verse 9 through 15. He wants us not only to to understand how to pray, but what to pray. What to pray. So verses 9 through 15, I want us to Look at this point now. Focus on God's priorities in your prayer. You know, verses 9 through 13 here are often referred to as the Lord's prayer. But the Lord himself would never pray this prayer. He instructed the disciples how to pray, so more properly would probably be referred to as the disciples' prayer because he talks about forgiving of debts, asking the Lord to to forgive us our debts. So um, in response to man-centered prayers of the Jewish leaders... And manipulative prayers of the Gentiles, Jesus now gives us this example, the sample prayer of humble submission. In the providence of God, he leaves us this recorded model prayer. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? I think because so often our prayers are so shallow, right? We pray for menial things. We pray for stuff. But we don't have this kind of mindset and focus that Jesus looks to emphasize here in this prayer. Now, so often this prayer is taken and memorized and is repeated over and over and over again. And almost kind of like we become guilty of of verse 7 again by just memorizing it without thinking it. But why is it here? Why is it here? Notice that the point is that we should not be praying this exact prayer, but that it serves as a model to what our prayers should be focusing on. Jesus didn't say, pray this prayer. He says in verse 9, pray then in this way. Pray then in this way. Nothing wrong with memorizing this prayer and even praying it, as long as we understand why, as long as we understand the intent that Jesus wants us to, to pursue the purpose for giving us this prayer. So what are God's priorities? What should be the focus of our prayers? I mean, we could probably spend, and many have, um, given a sermon on each one of these lines. So we could spend two months going through it. That is not my intention. It is just to highlight what God's Christ intention is here in this prayer. It falls into and breaks down into two sections, if you notice, verses 9 and 10, and then 11 through 13. And Jesus first pronounces and distinguishes these priorities by these pronouns, yours and ours. If you just look at, he says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your will, yours, God's first, and then Give us our, and forgive us our, 13, and do not lead us into temptation. So in prayer, as in life, yours, God's, comes before ours. He comes before I do. Prayer is about God. It's about adoration of God. It's about being reminded who God is and submitting ourselves under his rule, under his authority, under his will. It's an adoration of God, our Father. Father. And this is how the Lord starts this prayer. First of all, God's priority is the emphasis of fatherhood. Fatherhood. This is the first word, in fact. If you look at the original Greek, it starts out, Father, ours. For emphasis. Father, and this is huge, because usually no one approached God or referred to him as Father in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes, he's the first one who addresses God, Yahweh, deity, as his Father. On all but one occasion, 125 times, 126 times that Jesus referred to the Father, God. He referred to him as his father. Except for one time on the cross, remember when he quoted Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other time it was the father. That's why Pharisees hated him. Now, even though the gospels were written in the Greek language here, Mark, in chapter 14, reveals the term Jesus would have used when speaking Aramaic, his own language. And If you're in Mark, Mark 14, verse 36, you could just listen as I read. Look what Jesus says. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I, yet not as I, but as you will. Abba, Father. This Aramaic word, Abba, the word used in that culture to refer to their dad. Like, I would not approach your dad and say, Abba. But I would come to my dad and say, this is my dad, Abba. This is my daddy, in fact. And the emphasis is on the possession. This is my father. It speaks of this personal relationship and close intimacy. When you call out to God in prayer, Jesus instructs you, Christian, you call him from a proper position, you are his child. You are his child. Romans 8:15 says for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out daddy, abba, father. Oh, this is so important. This is so important. There's a story of a Roman emperor returning from great victory and a little boy was seen going through the crowds in order to get to the emperor. And immediately a bodyguard comes in and then starts to scold him saying, hey kid, you can't do that. Do you even know who he is? That's an emperor. And the boy replies, he may be an emperor to you, but he's a daddy to me. And this is the kind of attitude that we have to this great God of heaven and earth who possesses all things. He sees all things. He knows all things. And through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we come to him and we say, Father, you know, you understand, you care. What an amazing reality, church. Because of Jesus, through whom we have reconciliation with this God, we are adopted into his family. And just like Jesus, just like Jesus, just like Jesus, We refer to God as to our Father in heaven. But there's another priority. There's another priority. Remember, we're talking about God's priorities in prayer. And what is more important than what he addresses next is God-centeredness. This is of great importance, God-centeredness. These next petitions here, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. What does that mean? Well, hallowed means holy, sanctified, revered. May your name, may who you are in totality, right? In that culture, name means everything about you. So Father, as we come to you, may your name be sanctified, revered as holy. May all people in all the earth begin to honor you and begin to reflect you. That is what you're praying. That is what you're Prayers are impacted, this truth about who God is, and this desire to be God-centered so that his name would be revered, not only in you, your heart, your family's heart, but in all the world. Second, your kingdom come. We already talked about this term kingdom before, which doesn't refer to just the realm or place of God, but rather rule or authority of God. And by asking for his kingdom to come, we're asking for God to impose his authority on earth your kingdom come. As his disciples, this God-centeredness, Christ's rule and dominion must dominate our lives and our prayers as we express our heart's longing. We want to be pleasing to him. We want his name to be revered in us. We want his rule to be Seen in us that we're no longer our own, but we are under the dominion, we're in the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians chapter 1. But third, look at this your will be done, your will be done. This is us praying for and submitting to God's decrees, right? His wants, His will. Jesus demonstrated this in the garden we just read in Matthew 14, where He says, Not as I will, but as you, Father. And as his disciples, we we desire and pray that earth would become more like heaven. On earth as it is in heaven, where God's will is always obeyed. Always obeyed. And so we're looking forward to that time as we pray, realizing that not yet. Today is not the season yet. But we pray that God's kingdom would come, that his rule would come would be visible until it is finally fulfilled and it'll finally come at the consummation of the age. We will see it physically. But right now, Jesus rules and reigns in us, in our hearts. And we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because no one can thwart God's will there. Think through this and ask yourself, are these my priorities in prayer and in life? Do I approach God as my father because of my Lord Jesus? And are my prayers God-saturated as I pray in line with his will for his glory to be displayed, for his word to be obeyed and his rule to be expanded on earth as the church continues to grow and take over the enemy territory? Jesus goes on, though, moving, moving to address our needs now from yours to ours, the needs which are necessary to live the life that God wants us to live. One one preacher said he now goes from galaxies to the groceries. Everything is covered by God, and everything must be presented before the Lord. The life that's ultimately submitted to his rule and that's engaged in spreading his rule in all parts of the world where God has you, this is the attitude here that 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 he expresses. And he focuses on three needs. Number one, our need for provision. Number two, our need for pardon and our need for protection. We come, again, before God to express our needs. Need for protection or provision. We worship the Father as our giver. Give us this day our daily bread. And this request should not be limited just to mere physical, literal bread, but it's an expression of all of our needs. Like in 1 Timothy 6, Paul describes our needs as food and covering. This is what we need for life. And by praying this prayer, we are simply, we're not simply asking for God to give, even though that's what we're asking, but there's more than that. We are acknowledging that God is our giver. That's what we're doing. Not just give, 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 but we're saying, if you don't give, no one else can give. If you don't provide, I don't have another provider to go to. I am so dependent on you for bread. Each day, he graciously provides all that we need. And oh, how dependent we are on him. He's the giver. He's the giver of life. Regardless of how hard you work, you are still left in the position of gratitude and thankfulness before the Lord. This prayer here, it drives us to depend on the Father, but not only our need for provision, but our need for pardon. He says, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debt, what are these debts? Well, he later, in verse 14 and 15, this this here clause is so important that Jesus then goes back and he emphasizes the importance of forgiveness, and he he gives us a synonym for debt, and that is transgression, for if we forgive others for their transgression. So this debt here, it's not a financial debt. It is debt to God. These are sins. Sins. Our failure to live for and to honor God, to bring him glory results in our sin so that we become debtors before God. You See how that works? God deserves something. We owe God something. And because we don't give it to him, then we are in debt because of it. And that is sin. We don't often glorify God. We don't always live for God's glory. We fail. Therefore, we need pardon. As you pray this prayer, you understand that, that even though you desire to do God's will, right? We often fail. We fail in our thoughts. We fail in our deeds. We fail in our words. And so you realize your daily need and you confess. But notice something that our need for God's forgiveness is linked here to the need to forgive others. The need to forgive others. As God pardons He pardons others through us as well. Forgiven people, we say, forgive, don't they? If you've been forgiven, then you are known to be a forgiver. This is the same idea that that he already highlighted here in the Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, 5-7, for they shall receive mercy. Forgive us just as we have forgiven. God doesn't forgive or God's forgiveness does not depend on our forgiveness of others, right? I mean, it kind of sounds like that here. Listen, God forgives us when we come to him in humility, believing in what his son, Jesus, accomplished on the cross for us. Colossians 1.14 says, "...in Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins that is ours to possess." 1 John 2, 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That's a done deal. Those of you who believe in Jesus and place your complete faith, trust, your whole self on what Jesus had accomplished for you, your sins are forgiven. Everything. Having, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Everything. But this passage, along with Matthew 18, in which Jesus will expand on this topic, teaches us the importance of forgiving others as we come and as we confess our sins. As professing Christians, do you come to the Lord for forgiveness yet refuse to forgive your brother or sister? Do you like to receive mercy yet fail to be merciful to others? Do you like to be pardoned, yet be stingy when it comes to pardoning others? This is what the Lord is saying. When we come and when we're saying, forgive us as we have forgiven, we got to go back and say, are we holding something against another? God forgave us. How could we not forgive others? This is the acid test of, of whether we live out of, grace-based relationship with God or out of a a merit-based, self-based relationship. The former forgives others and, and keeps open this channel, this conduits of God's forgiveness flowing in and through us. The other blocks both. So our need for provision, our need for pardon, and he says this, Finally, our need for protection do not lead us into temptation. You know, it's pretty clear in the rest of Scripture, James chapter 1, that God does not tempt anyone. He is not tempted. And so what is this request that we're asking? And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Being led into temptation is given into the power of the evil one. We're asking for the Lord's protection augustine said we should pray then not that we may not be tempted right because being led into temptation is different from being tempted he says we should pray then not that we may not be tempted which is impossible but that we may not be brought under the power of temptation which happens to them who are caught up and captured by it children of god understand that that there engaged in a spiritual battle with a very crafty enemy here some of your translations may say but deliver us from evil probably a better translation would be but deliver us from the evil one from the enemy satan the evil one he tries to stop us from obeying the will of god at all costs. he opposes god and he will oppose you Our ability to resist and to persevere does not rely or depend on our maturity over a given sin. Our faith and obedience is secured because of God's protection and God's deliverance. He will lead us away. He will lead us through. Church, remember, God not only delivered you at the cross, but he continues to deliver you every single day from sin. Today, today you need Jesus just as much as when you, quote-unquote, did not need Jesus. Today you need Jesus just as much as that first day when you saw your need for the very first time. Why? Because it is through him that we are delivered. Now, final comment here. If you have a NASB translation You may have um, another clause here at the end of verse 13 bracketed. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is a textual variant and and most likely is not part of Matthew's original text. Since it cannot be found in the earliest manuscripts that are available to us today. So probably some scribes added this portion in the later copies of the New Testament. So it is not part of the original text text Now how do we summarize all this Well remember Church Christ teaches that prayer is an expression of humble dependence on our Father who sees knows gives and purposes all things Our posture in prayer must be childlike humility why why Because when we think about it everything we're asking or for here in prayer is possible only because of the work of Jesus Christ God is our Father because of Jesus Only through Jesus will God's kingdom come and be fully visible. Only through Jesus will his will be accomplished. Only through Jesus can we be assured of the Father's provision and of eternal forgiveness. Only through him do we have the power to forgive others. And only through Christ can we be protected from the influences of our enemy. This prayer is meant to put us in the proper place of our need. Need, humility. These priorities are are meant to drive us to the Father who sees, who knows, who gives us all things. Remember the pitfalls and avoid them. Rest in Christ and focus on these priorities. Our Father, we thank you and we humbly submit and we acknowledge that we are pathetic when it comes to praying because we're so often selfish. In fact, Scripture says we do not know how to pray. We do not know how to pray. And therefore, the Spirit residing in us, He prays. He he prays for us, and Jesus intercedes for us because of His blood, because of what He had accomplished, finished work on the cross through His death and resurrection. We thank You for that. Help us, Father, to be mindful of these things and, and come before You humbly submitting, knowing that You know We don't have to impress. We want to glorify you. Protect our prayers, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.